You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Well, last week we talked about um, self-examination. We looked at ourselves as God sees us. And we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that the most significantly rebellious act was ever committed when Adam and Eve stepped out of God's ordained plan. And in an instant, everything changed. No longer did perfect people walk in a perfect world in perfect union with their perfect God and their perfect mate. Now fear and anxiety and shame and guilt was the standard. And in that moment, sin affected everything. It affected every thought, every word, every deed, every action, everything they did. The once perfect harmony they knew was now characterized by deceitfulness and the desire to control one another. And they accused one another. And that same sin grips our hearts today. It's how we respond to blessing. It affects how we respond to suffering. It takes love and it morphs it into selfish lust. It takes the God-ordained safety of a home and sometimes make it the place where the most cruel hurts can occur. It robs the government of good. It takes the joy and corrupts a workplace, takes the joy out of and corrupts a workplace. It even stains churches. And at the end of the day, James tells us that sin always leads to death. And it does this because it is inside every one of us. It's not something that we can outsmart. We can't buy our way out of it. We can't move away from it. It is in us. And it causes a war to rage within each person, even every believer. And this war, it actually lies beneath the skirmishes of everyday life. And on the two sides of this war is a jealous God who gives unrelenting grace and who will settle at nothing less than wholehearted devotion. And on the other side, we have this devious enemy and he lures us with attractions of this created world. And he tries to tell us that those things give life, but they don't. He whispers to us, that those things will satisfy knowing that God created us to only be satisfied in him. He whispers to us that those things will bring glory and pleasure, knowing that God created us only for his glory. And what he does is he gets us to believe that we can actually find a life and satisfaction outside of him. And when he does that, he's got us. And we will seek to serve the creation and not the creator, oftentimes completely unaware of our own idolatry. 
and will blame people and situations and locations when really they're just the fruit of our own idolatry. I want us to look in Galatians tonight. Paul really adequately expresses this struggle of the heart. We're going to look in Galatians 5, and I'm actually going to read 13 through 26, so bear with me. It's a long passage. Um, So starting in verse 36, um, and Paul is writing to Galatian believers. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Paul takes this heart struggle, and he basically says, you can define this heart struggle as two foundational lifestyles. One, you can indulge gratify the sinful nature, or you can live spirit-controlled, self-sacrificing love. Those are the two things. Loving your neighbor, he says, actually summarizes the entire law. Why? Because you can't love your neighbor like yourself if you don't first love God. I want you to look back at this verse, this passage, and take note of a couple of words um, that I think are extremely important for understanding cross-examination in the culture in which we live. Um, Depending on your translation, it may say, indulge the sinful nature or satisfy the desires of the flesh or satisfy the cravings of the flesh. This little phrase dynamically captures the war that rages within us. It's the same war that's been assaulting the world and our culture and every culture since sin wreaked havoc on our world. 
Paul addresses this war between the spirit and the flesh because that's the war of the heart. So what does it mean to gratify or indulge the sinful nature? When you gratify or indulge something, you feed it. You go where it takes you. You let it have free reign. But verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Notice he used two words to qualify the sinful nature, passions and desires. And they are not the same thing. They're actually two different words. They capture two different ideas. The word for passions in this verse, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, is pathema. And it refers to like strong, inward, inflamed feelings, driving emotions, emotions that are aroused and drive you to do things. They are intense. They are overmastering feelings. They are often emotions that feel ungovernable, barely controllable, that are deeply stirred. That's passions. The word for desires is actually a compound word. It's epithumia. And it's actually a neutral term. It really just means that you have a deep longing or craving or desire for something. And it determines whether it's good or evil based on what the object of that craving is. These two words quite succinctly describe our world, how our world responds, how our world thinks, how our, the people in our world um, behave, what they believe, because they are ruled and controlled by their passions and desires. And those controlling impulses are connected to deep emotions that seem uncontrollable. They're coupled with strong desires and cravings for pleasure and satisfaction. This is why our culture puts so much emphasis on people's feelings, your senses. I feel like a girl even though God created me to be a boy. I feel sexually attracted or aroused to women even though I am a woman or a man even though I'm a man and so on. These feelings are justified by our culture. And what does the world say? What is the world's cure? You be the best you you can be. Well, if that's how you really feel, then that's what you were meant to be. Get in touch with the real you. Or the world focuses on managing the acts associated with those passions and desires. And they might do things like limit setting, goal setting. Um, Accountability partners are often used in the secular world. And an accountability partner is awesome if it's in conjunction with 
the gospel penetrating and changing your heart. But just like we talked about Josh Hamilton last week, if you're not addressing the heart issue, when that accountability partner goes away, so does your accountability. Counselors' offices are full today of people who want quick fixes, people who want ways to visibly manage those passions and desires, or ways to manage the people in your life who aren't managing theirs. We can't merely look at just the visible effects. I used a lot of sports analogies last week, and I think I have time for this one. But um, if I look like a healthy, relatively fit 52-year-old woman, which that, I'm 52. But what you don't know about me is I have diseased blood that runs throughout my entire body. There's nothing medically that can be done for it. But to look at me from the outside, I don't look like I have diseased blood. I don't look like I have two blood clots, one in the portal vein of my spleen and one in the portal vein of my liver. I don't look like that those blood clots cause me to have a host of other problems. And I do things like exercise and eat well and drink like 80 ounces of water a day. I do all the things that the secular world would say are things that would help me. But there's only one thing that's going to fix my problem. New blood or the cure for the blood I currently have. So we can't just focus on what's visible because you don't know what's underlying when all we're focusing on is the visible. The other thing about Galatians 5 is it not only captures this struggle for the heart, but it actually takes the gospel out of the realm of like abstract theology and it puts it right in your everyday life. In order to address these desires, these passions that we innately have, we have to replace that with something greater. This is what I love about God. He has this economy. And it is true throughout. You can think about people that you know who have smoked and they quit smoking. Almost to a person, they gain weight because they replace one vice with another. We have this built-in economy. And when God wants us to replace something, he always gives us something greater with which to replace it. Our affections for ourselves and our idols have to be captured by a far more enchanting affection. Another kind of thing along the lines of this economy that God shows us is when he tells us to take off the old self, he doesn't just leave us there naked. He tells us to put on the new self. Seeing the glory of God in the gospel is what gives us freedom to see that in ourselves. So, 
I'm using the word gospel a fair amount, and I'm going to use it even more as we continue. So what do I mean when we talk about the gospel? Um, I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It like so well encapsulate what encapsulates what the gospel is. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Here Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, this is what you believed. This is the gospel. So, what is the gospel? That Jesus took the full wrath of God and lived a perfect life that I should have lived and died a death that I was condemned to die. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 also tells us that he literally became sin so that I could literally become his righteousness. He took my record broken and in a mess and gave me his perfect record in return. When I received this unspeakable, really scandalous grace, The full acceptance of God becomes mine. He lived in my place. I get to live in his. He died in my place. I get to die in his. There is no way to understand the gospel at a heart level and not be radically changed. I'm going to say that again. There is no way to fully understand the gospel at your core and not be radically changed. In the gospel, we see the massiveness of God's power. It's a power that's greater than creation because what God did through the gospel is he regenerated death to life. He redeemed sinners. Um. In Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul calls 
the gospel, the power of God. There's only two things that Paul refers to as the power of God. One of them is Jesus Christ himself, and the other one is the gospel. And the thing about the gospel being the power of God is that when you believe the gospel, there's actually power released in you. The power of God is released in you. And it's not just the power that forgives my sins of the past and redeems me for a future hope, eternal glory. It's a power to live every moment of every day like Jesus wants me to live and to say no to those passions and desires of my flesh. The word that he uses for power in this verse is the same word we get our word for dynamic or dynamite. It's dunamis, but it's not an explosive power. It is a dynamic working power that is able to um, overcome resistance. It's a power that leads to action, and it is a power that is innate. It is by the very virtue and nature of something, having that power. This dynamic power is so strong that it is able to radically change dead men and women to live men and women. We're not changed by hearing what we need to do for God. We are changed by hearing what God has done for us. The gospel is transforming power. Um, If you want to look in Titus 2, um, there's some further evidence of this transforming power of the gospel. Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Same word, same word for passions as in the Galatians verse, but this time we have a qualifier. These passions are worldly passions. Before, Paul is just talking about neutral passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good works. These, then, are the things you should teach. So Paul is telling Titus, remind the people of the redemptive power of the gospel. The gospel is not just about God helping people do better. And even though it is partly about this, it's not just about God through the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus forgiving our sins. The goal of the gospel is his own glory. He calls out a people for himself to purify that he calls his very own. 
when our hearts, when their hearts were unchallenged, fully devoted to him, they were eager to do good things for Jesus. He wants Titus to teach this to the people. He wants them to know the story of his unrelenting, jealous grace. And this grace doesn't simply focus on the forgiveness of our past or our future eternal glory, but it focuses on everyday life. It is here at the end of a long day. It's here after years of marriage. It's here after the first year of marriage. It's here in the life of a church. It's here for the journey of a family. It reminds us that we can win the battle, the war, the one war that we have to win, and that's the war for the heart. J.D. Greer says that um, gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God alive in our hearts. He is jealous for our hearts. And that's not a threat. He's not threatening us with his jealousy. His jealousy is our one true hope because he will not rest until our hearts are fully his. It's only that heart-satisfying grace that can protect us and can free us from ourselves and of the riches of this fallen world. We are so drawn to the temporary addictions, the temporary pleasures of this world. But we have an an inheritance that is far beyond our wildest dreams. Why would we run out into the street like beggars to the world when we have more than we could ever ask for? And that is not just about our future. That's about our here and now. If you can stare your sin your idolatry of self, your glory-robbing, pornography, serving and worshiping the almighty dollar, controlling your world so that no one can hurt you, or whatever captures your heart. If you can look that in the face and say, I got this, you are in deep, deep spiritual trouble. When we were um, raising our kids when they were little, we learned about something called macro and micro rebellion. Macro rebellion were those acts that were so visible you could tell what was going on in the heart of a child. And micro rebellion was that child who you tell to stand in the corner And they're standing in the corner, but inside, they're sitting down. We have to be aware of the micro-rebellion in our heart and the macro-rebellion in our heart.
You see, it's only when we recognize our own spiritual poverty, when we are crushed by our own spiritual poverty, when we are aware that we, the, our ability is destitute, that our strength, that our wisdom is not worth anything. It's only then that we will reach out to God to get his wisdom, his righteousness, that he will give us the insight and the courage to fight the battles that he graces us to fight. That sense of hopelessness that I just described is actually the doorway to hope. If we abandon our hope in ourselves and in our world, then we'll seek God. We'll reach out for his riches. Sometimes believers will kind of fall into two camps. We will be that... um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of person. We will um, think we can do this. That age-old adage of God helps those who help themselves, kind of that mentality. Or we think we are too far gone and there is no hope for us. Both those believers have something called identity amnesia. Because by the very nature of who God is and what he has done for us, he has taken us far beyond what we can ever know. Either we've simply forgotten who we are and what he's done for us, or we never really grasped it to begin with. And when we have that kind of identity amnesia, it's dangerous. Because we don't seek the help we need. We don't rest in the grace we've been given. We don't fight the battles we face with the weapons that grace has given us. It's only when we get who we are and what God has done for us in his lavish love and grace that we'll quit trying to satisfy our souls with other things and will rest in his riches. This is a process. And actually, it's pretty visible in 2 Corinthians 5:17. You think it's not, but it really is. Um, that verse says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature." The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a couple of cool uh, verb tenses in the Greek that don't translate well to English. And when he says, you are new creation, the old has passed. There are two different things going on there. There's the aorist tense and there's um, an indicative mood. 
And those two things work together to say the old has passed on a specific day and a specific time in history. This is in the chronology of history. It's passed away. The old has passed. It is no more. The new has come is a different tense. It's the perfect tense. And it says, the new has come, the new is here right now, but guess what? The new is continuing. The new continues to come. So that song, uh, we sang it a few weeks ago, called Beautiful Things. I love that song. But uh, I don't know what it's called when there's like two competing choruses in a song, but there's two competing choruses in that song. And one of them says... Um, you make me new, you are making me new. Because that's what that verse says. You made me new, and you're still making me new. And we need that. Because as we learned last week, the power of sin was broken on Jesus, when Jesus lived a perfect life, died, and rose again. But the presence of sin still lurks within us. And thanks be to God, he is gradually eradicating that from us. So what does it mean to live a life where I actually affirm my identity in Christ, where I live in light of the resources of grace that he has bestowed upon me, where I approach the struggles in my life from the perspective of the gospel. What new ways do I need to be living so that I can have the soul-satisfying relationship that he wants and I can understand that he has welcomed me to the table of the king of kings and the lord of lords I got about 10 things that I want to um point out and I'll do them quickly because we're close on time the first one is truly believing the gospel I mean, I can't say it enough. You can't truly believe the gospel to your core and not be radically changed. You can't do it. Know that you're never alone. See, Satan wants us to believe that we're out on this limb all by ourselves. um, And really this and um, what number is it? Five, I think. Yeah. Really work hand in hand. So he wants us to think that we are like an island, that nobody understands us, that we're never alone. But God is so amazing, and he knew our need was and is so great, and that our battle is so tough, that he literally unzipped us and put his Holy Spirit inside of us. Because he knew we needed that. We knew we needed him. We're forgiven. Satan wants to throw our sin back in our face. And yes, 
you are going to blow it. If you haven't already, you will. You're going to blow it. But God has forgiven you, and when he forgave you, he didn't just forgive you for all your sins past. He took your sin knowing that even after you followed him, you were still going to choose to worship yourself. You were still going to choose to lie. You were still going to choose things that choose things that deny him. But you are forgiven. Only his grace will satisfy your heart. We belabored that a lot last week, but everything in this created world is designed to draw you to him. And only him. Um, We have all the resources that we need. Um, Over and over and over again, we're told in the Bible that we have every spiritual blessing that we could need. That God does not allow us to be tempted far beyond what we can handle. And he always provides us a way of escape. The cross assures me that in my personal spiritual storehouse, I have everything I need. And it also assures me that change is possible. See, We think when things get harder, when we try to change, or when God begins to change, that, oh, that's not a good sign. Um, Has anybody here ever had a wound irrigated without any anesthesia? Hurts like the Dickens. I I don't know who these Dickens are, but they have some rough lives. It does. It's, have you ever had stitches without anesthesia? A lot of times when God is irrigating us, and when he is stitching us back up, it feels worse before it gets better. But that does not mean that change is not possible. Because... Our change is based on who he is. It's based on his character, not ours. Um, This is one of my favorite little things about the gospel, is that weakness is not our greatest problem. Our delusion of strength is. When we think we can handle it on our own, then we think we don't need God. There are going to be times, and there, there will probably be times by the time you get home tonight, that you said yes to something you should have said no to. But praise God, he knows our weakness. And he tells us his power is actually perfected in our weakness. One of the ways that we would communicate our neediness for the gospel in our children 
was helping them identify weaknesses when they were struggling with something. We reminded them, this is why you need Jesus. Because of the gospel, we've been given wisdom for everyday life. Remember how we talked last week that God created us to need him for instruction, for revelation. Adam and Eve did not know what to do unless God told them what to do. We have the word of God and the Holy Spirit that both communicate his wisdom to us. This is something I love about the gospel too. Um, I love the gospel in case you couldn't tell. But, um, and we read this last week. We read Psalm 51, 1 through 12. But I think probably my favorite verse in that whole thing is is 13. Um, Because as we repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel spreads. After David's dissertation of God, create in me a clean heart, cleanse me, shine your light in my innermost parts and show me where I need to follow you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then he says, and then. I will teach transgressors transgressors their ways and sinners will return to you. When I truly believe the gospel and I repent as the gospel leads me to repent, I will not, I won't be able to help sharing that. See, Christ's obedience was so spectacular, there's nothing we can do to add to it. And his death was so final, there's nothing we can do to take away from it. We have to actively preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another every day. You know, we don't stop doing whatever by people telling us stop doing whatever. We stop doing whatever by seeing the glory and majesty of Jesus with our hearts. Think about your children. You can tell them a hundred times, stop doing whatever it is. Stop, 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 stop. Most of the time, what does that make them want to do? Do, 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 do. It makes them want to do whatever it is we're telling them to stop. But when we can get into their heart the reason, the purpose, why they need to stop, when their heart can be impacted by the glory in the gospel, that's what makes us stop. Um, I'm actually going to skip. I have so much to say. But I'm going to skip to the end so we can have time for questions. We won't have much, but... Our mission statement as a church is sending transformed believers to influence their world for Christ. The power for transformation is the gospel. It's only when we believe the gospel 
that we are available for transformation. The gospel is a story that really reveals such beauty and power that when you encounter it, you are never the same. It's about hearing all that God has done for us. And when we respond with repentance to that, there will be a harvest of good deeds and a harvest of souls. So do you really believe the gospel? I'm going to have some questions. We're going to open up the floor for some Q&A here, and I just kind of want to get things rolling uh, for a minute. I'll start with the first one. Jacob, isn't that right? I get to ask first because I have the mic. You said I get to do whatever I want. Okay. Um, the first is, uh, I just, from life experience, mm-hmm. from your profession, both of those kind of things in view, what would you say to the person that says, I love Jesus, but I keep finding myself bowing to the same idol. Mm-hmm. I keep finding myself in the same repetitious sin. I think about, I think about Matthew five. I think mm-hmm. about what Jesus says. Um, if, uh, you know, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say mm-hmm. not to look at a woman lustfully in your eyes. It's mm-hmm. the same as committing adultery cut your hand off, gouge your eye Mm -hmm. out. So there's this kind of like idea of behavior modification and heart Mm -hmm. change kind of working together. Mm -hmm. So how would you speak truth to someone that says, or kind of even just practical wisdom to someone that would say, I love Jesus, but I keep finding myself in this same Mm -hmm. habitual pattern. Okay. Um, And we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but I would say a couple of things. One, um, I think the inclination would be to say, let me find a bunch of scripture verses that tell you stop desiring X, Y, Z. And those are great. But aside from the power of the redeeming word of God, all those do is tell me stop, 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 stop. Mm -hmm. The only way for someone to stop those kinds of things is what I said before. You have to get to the core of what the draw is. So is the draw, I'm alone? Mm -hmm. Is the draw um, that I desire pleasure over whatever else? Both of those things say, God, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so what I would encourage them to do is to pray that God would increase their affection for him. And I would lead them in ways to increase their affection for him. Because how God's economy works is you're not going to replace, take something away without something filling it up. It's like the, um, I think it was a girl that had the seven demons and Jesus said, you know, the disciples prayed and they left and like thousands more came. Well, because they replaced something and they didn't fill it back up with something greater. So in order to really address that, you have to address the bottom line. And the bottom line is you don't love Jesus as much as you love your pleasure. You don't love Jesus as much as you love yourself. 
let's pray that God will give you that love for him. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What other questions? It sounds simplistic. I know it does, but there is power in that. Any questions? It's I'm okay. walking to you with the no, mic. No, this is, this is, you know, we're all sinners. <laughs> well, we are. <laughs> you don't need to hold it. Okay. Okay, so I've been on the receiving end of, of many hours of counseling myself. And, okay. And so for Christians and confronted with others that, you know, have been diagnosed with um, depression or bipolar mm-hmm. or whatever, how can you support other Christians like that? Why okay. do we have to keep it sort of hidden, mm-hmm. not knowing how other people are going to respond? Yeah. But as a counselor, when you get to that place, like, mm-hmm. you know, I had a counselor one time just have me memorize Ephesians 1, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I love that part, mm-hmm. but I still wanted to kill myself. So yeah, where do you go? Well, a couple of things. One, um, yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, the question was basically if somebody has been diagnosed with depression or bipolar and reading God's word is helpful, but it might not necessarily take away those feelings. So I'm not sure how this got started in the Christian culture that you can't have psychological problems. They're all spiritual If I broke my leg and I went to my orthopedic surgeon and he said, hey, listen, read Ephesians 1 and come back to me and you're laughing. But you see the insanity in that. There are chemical imbalances. There are medically organic things that cause people to have depression, that cause people to have panic disorders that cause people to have what we call mental illnesses or mental disorders. And yes, being in God's word helps you cope with that, but you may need medical assistance. I mean, I pray every day that God takes away my blood clots and heals my blood disease, but I'm not not taking my medicine. I'm not not doing the things medically I need to do. So that's what I would say. I would say that there are, you need to, um, in fact, one of the things I always do is I ask people, have you been to a medical doctor and have you had anybody actually diagnose you with a medical condition? Because I need to know that first. Because there may be some medication that you need to take that will help treat whatever is going on. Does that answer your question? So even as a follow-up to what she was saying, basically how can we as believers help other people who are walking through, walking in those shoes? So from a clinical standpoint, that's very, very helpful. Okay. So as a fellow believer, I mean, one, you have to acknowledge that, that that is an issue. I mean, we have talked about as a church about taking off our masks. I mean, we have to be willing to, um, be open with one another. I can't help you if I don't know there's an issue. I just think you're rude because you're not talking to anybody, right? 
But if I know that you have a concern, you have an issue that I need to help with, that I can walk alongside you to help with, that only helps me help you. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? That's okay. good. What other yeah, questions? Somebody else had a question over there somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have one, Jenny? You were talking about accountability partners, mm-hmm. and one thing working with teenagers is, and I see with my girls, is they will find an accountability partner that's struggling with the same thing that they're struggling with. And then it's like, well, that's okay. We'll do better next week. Right. What do you think about, mm-hmm. like, not just teenagers, because I tell them, find an accountability partner that's not struggling with the same thing you are. But as far as adults go, right. with, what do you suggest? Okay. So the cool thing about Jesus is he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So we have somebody on our side who knows exactly what our temptation is. But our flesh wants to think that you have to have struggled with what I've struggled with to understand what I'm struggling with, right? Um, They think if you haven't ever had drug addiction, you can't really help somebody who is drug addicted. Um, And that's not the case. I would, first of all, I would encourage teenagers and adults alike to find an accountability partner who has a kindred heart whose heart is bent toward truly being affected by the gospel, not just somebody who needs you to hold their hand um, because they're not going to be a very good accountability partner for you. Um, But I also would say more importantly than somebody sharing your struggle as an accountability partner is somebody that you can be unashamedly honest with. That you can be completely forthcoming. Um, does that make sense? Because our tendency is to minimize our struggle or to validate the struggle of somebody else. So I don't know that it's really necessarily you know, amongst the checklist that you have to struggle with the same thing I do. It actually probably helps me if you don't, just to be honest. Because I can see your side of how God has allowed you to have strength to deal with the same thing I'm dealing with, but you're not succumbing to that temptation. That's good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We're going to move into discussion groups. Um, You've got about 15 minutes. Again, we're working through questions two, five, seven, and 20. I feel like I'm doing the Powerball. (laughs) 